0: now then we come to the preaching of God's Word. Again, we are continuing to work through our time in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, and today we come to Genesis chapter 8. Proceeding that, we are told that in the days of Noah, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's conjunction, but it introduces a contrasting set of circumstances to what would or could be expected. We should have anticipated that God would simply blot out all mankind, for if every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, we should have expected, and so God wiped them out and started again. Or maybe that he would wipe them out and move on entirely. For we know that God does not need us. God in his grace and in his mercy and in his love has seen fit to create us and to allow us to have the privilege of worshiping him, but he does not need us. But one man, Noah, by his faith, as we are informed in Hebrews 11, he finds favor in the eyes of the Lord. In our last few message, messages, we've walked through the, the depth and the despicableness of sin that has led the earth to the precipice that it had come to. And we saw therein our own sin, the consequences that we deserve, and these consequences are no less severe than that which the world experienced in Noah's day and then we looked at how God walked out that judgment and that he walked back his creation decreating that which he had created to steal from Paul in Romans 1 we saw the wrath of wrath of God revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men And now today we come to the new beginning, the initiation of God's recreation, a second beginning in the history of mankind. So I would invite with you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 8, and we'll read that chapter together. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of forty days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark and the dove came back to him in the evening and behold in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove and she did not return to him anymore. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In The second month, on the twenty-seventh day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. This is God's Word. I wonder why is it that our society enjoys hero stories so much. I'm not just talking about superheroes, but whether it's Superman or Indiana Jones or Braveheart or James Bond or whichever hero that comes in our fictional stories you want to think of, why are people just chomping at the bit to see these heroes and heroines do their thing? We know that there is little to no realism in most of these stories, even the supposedly based-on-fact stories are embellished to drive home, look at this incredible hero and what he or she has done. I think one of the things is we like to see the good guy win. The hero gets, gets the girl, the underdog gets his chance, the oppressed main character breaks out of whatever situation he comes from and achieves the impossible. We like this because it helps us to believe that maybe, just maybe, we too, if we follow the right path and do the right things, we could achieve that kind of greatness in our own personal circumstances. And I think that kind of effect sets in when we read stories like this one. Stories like Noah and the flood, or Daniel in the lion's den, or David and Goliath. We like these hero stories. That's why they get so much airtime. That's why they are the on the cover of every children's Bible you can imagine. Why, there are probably more sermons on these major heroes than we could probably shake a stick at. These real-life biblical heroes, they fit that mold that we look for. These men did the impossible. But... That same mindset is part of why I had to warn us against the tendency to default to that Sunday school understanding. If you've been listening and paying attention in these last couple of messages as we've been looking even at this one story, the story of Noah. If you've been listening since we've even been starting at the beginning of Genesis you'll realize that this is not the story of Noah and the flood, or of Noah and the ark. Noah is not, in fact, the hero of the story. Sure, Noah does find his place, and he is commended, even in the Hebrews chapter 11 Hall of Fame, but... Genesis, all of Scripture, it is not Noah's story, it's not David's story, it's not Daniel's story, it is God's story. And God is the hero of the story. It is true that Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household, and by this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Noah's commended for that in Hebrews 11. But how did Noah know to build an ark? How how did Noah even know what an ark was? How did all the animals get on the ark? Who shut Noah in to the ark? This is God's story. How did Noah and his family and all of these animals Survive in one tiny little boat in a cataclysm big enough to destroy all life on earth it is by the sustaining hand of God. So we run the risk of misidentifying the main character, the hero in the story. And the same is true in our own lives. We run through our, at max, 80 to 100 years of our lives like we are the main characters when we ought to see ourselves rightly as supporting cast members in God's story. God has written us into his story for his glory and for our good. That doesn't take away the responsibility that we hold. Noah did rightly become commended for his faith. The way that he acted was deserving of commendation, but he was a supporting character in God's story. But supporting cast member or no, the story of God's dealings with Noah is not done yet. Like I said, we've dealt with the wickedness of the world, the wickedness of sin, as well as God's judgment upon sin, and the judgment that God will continue to pour out upon sin. But now we're getting to the part that we're tempted to skip to in the first place. We're tempted to jump past all of that dark and nasty and sinful stuff and get to the rainbow, get to the animals coming out of the ark, the smiling giraffe sticking its head out of the top of the ark and the pictures. and But unless we do what we've done, where we take the time to peel back the colorful sticker on the front and look into the depths and the darkness of sin that made this situation necessary. Unless we can feel enough to be utterly horrified by the judgment that awaits the unrighteous, then the rescue, the need for a savior, it never really finds the weight that is meant to carry. God is not the center of the story if we're looking for the storybook picture of the ark. But if we take the time to see the darkness, if we take the time to acknowledge our sin and the judgment of God, and then we see this rescue come in, if we see that God would remember Noah, that speaks not only of Noah's faith, it speaks even more clearly of God's faithfulness. God had not forgotten Noah. God had not abandoned Noah. God had not abandoned his promises. And A lot of times when we read God remembered Noah, that should make us kind of ask a question because when we remember something, when I remember where my phone is or where I left my keys, what does that imply? That I have forgotten it, that I have lost it. God had not lost Noah. God had not forgotten Noah. Ours is not a God who just sets the world on course and then goes about his business and then every now and then remembers, oh, I should probably check in and see on see how the people are doing. That's the kind of God that Elijah, a prophet of the Lord, mocked when he was contending against the prophets of Baal. When he was contending against those prophets, these prophets are doing their thing, trying to get Baal's attention. Elijah comes out saying, cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or maybe he's asleep and must be awakened. The kind of god that would forget. That's the kind of god that a prophet of the Lord mocks. Ours is not a god who... Forgot Noah. Yahweh did not need to be reminded of Noah. That God remembered Noah means that God cared for him. That God did not forget Noah. God kept Noah in his remembrance. And that God faithfully moved on Noah's behalf. In 618, God began a covenant, one that Lord willing... We will examine in depth more next weekend, but God said, I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your son's wife, with you. Remember what we said. That but comes up again here, even in God's covenant. It was not to be expected or assumed that Noah and his family would be saved. It is a gracious act on God's behalf that he would remember, that he would care for Noah, that Noah would find favor with the Lord. Remember in chapter 6, when Noah was born, we're told that Noah's father, Lamech, when he had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. That is an obvious echo of the promise of promise given to Adam and Eve that this curse would one day be lifted and Noah did not lift that curse, but out of Noah that curse was lifted. Lamech could not have known how truly and how Narrowly, that would be fulfilled for there is no one else through whom that promise was kept because just as with it was with Adam, all mankind would be able to trace their lineage back to Noah because Noah and his family was the only family. And again, God is providing for his promises and proving his faithfulness to the covenants he's made with his people. God remembers Noah and not only Noah but also the animals and livestock that were with him. Then God sends a wind to dry the earth. He closes the heavens and the fountains of the deep that immersed all of creation. The tools of his judgment he withdraws. And we begin to see God's recreative work. We talked last week about how this whole flood account parallels. The creation account, how God is walking back creation and now God is bringing creation forward again. The first element that God separates, he separates the dry land from the waters. The ark comes to rest on the mountains of Ararat. God sends a wind to dry up the earth. That same word is the word that is used at the very beginning of scripture of the spirit of god hovering over the waters pre-creation the spirit of god is hovering over the waters and now god sends a wind to initiate the subsiding of the flood god is creating the world afresh washed clean and prepared for its inhabitants noah and his righteous line noah again is a type of adam adam was meant to worship God and to carry forth God's image. And he failed. Now it's Noah's turn. Can Noah do any better? Then we have this story of the ark coming to rest and of the raven and the doves, an ingenious way from Noah's part to try and determine if the earth was once again inhabitable. And eventually the dove does not return, and noah knows that the waters had truly receded. And thus a year forward from the coming of the flood waters, a full year passed that Noah and his family were on this ark. 370, 371 days, depending on how you work the numbers. Then God said to Noah. Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him, every beast, every creeping thing and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Finally, Noah and his family are brought out safely onto dry land. And they are recommissioned. So this recreation continues that even as Adam and Eve were commissioned, be fruitful and multiply. Even as all of these birds and animals had been commissioned, be fruitful and multiply. God says, bring everybody out and be fruitful and multiply. Particularly for Noah and his family, they are to go forth and carry forward the imago Dei, the image of God. They are to carry that forward by their very existence and by their conduct. Noah and his line are to proclaim the existence of the, and the character of their creator. It's interesting that Peter spends so much time looking at Noah and in 1 Peter, I'm compelled to bring us a little bit into the New Testament here. The emergence of this family out of the ark is not just a good story. Sometimes we can take a look at particularly these well-known stories and go, so Noah was faithful to God. That's the message. And because Noah was faithful God saved him. But that is not what Scripture gives us. That is a tiny piece. In Peter, we're told when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Directly in Peter's letters, Noah's emergence from the ark is applied to Christian baptism. Just as Noah had been brought through the waters, the waters of death, and figuratively brought back to life onto dry land, so too the believer experiences and dramatizes this in the waters of baptism. Romans 6, the Apostle Paul says that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. The waters of that great flood carry forward as a picture of God's overwhelming and unassailable final judgment against sin and wickedness. And that judgment the same judgment that extinguished all life on earth in a global flood it is satisfied in the death of christ christ soaks up in himself the drop of every judgment on behalf who would be on behalf of those who would follow him wholeheartedly that in his burial we too would be buried and christian baptism is intimately entwined with the salvation of the believer be clear, the physical act of coming up and being baptized, being dunked in the water, does not save. But it is assumed of the one who has been saved, and baptism, not with water, but of the Spirit, which the water symbolizes, is that new birth without which our Savior says a person cannot enter the kingdom of God. So I'm not going to spend an entire rest of this message plugging baptism But if you have believed and you have not been baptized, that is something that we are commanded to do. But the believer coming forth from the water, even as Noah and his family came forth from the water as God's chosen people upon the earth, Noah is declaring that God has saved him. As he comes out, he says, look, I am here. And a believer in their baptism does the same, declares that God has saved them, that they have been raised from the dead in Christ, that they are no longer dead in their trespasses and in their sins, but they have been saved in Christ unto the purpose for which all men have been made, to declare the glory of God. And God has, if we are in Christ, He has remembered us. He has drawn near to us, and he has saved us. He has sustained and cared for us in such a way that we emerge into new life. But as is often the case in these stories, there's layer upon layer. We can just go, well, Noah was faithful, and so he was saved. Okay, well, there's the baptism image here, but there's also a further picture. As we've already acknowledged in previous messages, as as. Peter gets into in 2 Peter 3, this also correlates with the final judgment upon the earth. That just as the earth was wiped clean by water, that now God is storing up the earth for fire and God will once again wipe the earth clean of all unrighteousness. And if that is the case, then the emergence of Noah into this fresh new world also correlates with the future life of the new believer that we await for when God does indeed cleanse this world, making things new once and for all. The best part of this passage to demonstrate that from verse 20 when we see Noah's reaction coming forth from the ark, and this verse 20 is pretty well as core as it comes in our entire passage. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Noah's first impulse after experiencing God's salvation was to worship. He immediately builds an altar to the Lord and praises Him for the incredible grace and mercy that He has been shown. And my point and The point here is to point out that in all stages of human history, creation and flood and salvation in Christ and on into eternity, our mandate, our intended purpose as humans does not change. We were created for and will always be intended for worship of God. And Noah, demonstrating his faith, The Godward character by which it was said that Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah's impulse, his Godward orientation, is hammered home by this immediate desire to worship God. And it should prove as an example to us today as to our response to God. In our salvation, in our baptism, We have been brought from death to life. We have, by the grace of God in Christ, been carried through the waters unscathed. And if we are found in Christ, then we will both here on this earth and forevermore engage in the worship of the one who both created and saved us from our sin. When we are saved, we are reminded, we are reorientated towards worship. And one day, because we know that we are saved and we are being saved... And one day when we are finally saved, when we are glorified, when we see God face to face, what is it that we are going to do? We're going to worship and worship forevermore. When we're studying the words of Scripture, we don't ever particularly in these Old Testament passages want to skip straight from the words on the page, particularly words written to Old Testament believers under a totally different covenant thousands of years ago. We don't want to skip straight from, okay, it says here that, okay, I can take that and port that and put it directly into my 2024 context. These words were recorded by the work of the Spirit in human authors to specific audiences. That's part of the hard work of studying Scripture, we call that exegesis. What did it mean to the original audience, and what does that message mean to us today? Because we're looking for the message that is already here. I'm not looking to put a new message here. But in our passage today, that first audience, Moses' audience, remember that this is being written long after the days of Noah. So Moses' audience is looking back at the history of God's faithfulness to Noah as we are seeing this written. They would not have been able to miss the covenant faithfulness of God and the responsibility of his people to respond in worship. That comes across really clearly in that final words of the Lord's response to Noah's faithful act of worship. And it's kind of the beginning, the preamble to the Noahic Covenant that we're going to get into next week, Lord willing. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever strike down every living creature as I have done, while the earth remains seed time and harvest cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Remember, this point in history with Noah, a codified sacrificial system had not yet, that we've been told, been implemented. Noah did not have a, okay, you must do this sacrifice for this sin. Noah's response is immediate in worship and seems to be kind of a gut reaction. We need to worship God. But the first readers of this account the first people who would have heard these words, they were within that system. And they would not have missed that this was an obvious precursor for them. That pleasing aroma of the offering ascending before God and his care for the one who is faithful to his commandments would not have gone unnoticed. Maybe Noah didn't have a sacrifice X animal for X thing, but immediately... Noah knew to worship God and to sacrifice to him. Charles Spurgeon said of this sacrifice, the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma. Noah's faith was pleasing to God. It was Noah's confidence in a bleeding sacrifice that gave him acceptance with the Lord. And God thought about his son and that great sacrifice to be offered long afterwards on the cross, and he smelled the pleasing aroma. That initial pre-Abraham's sacrifice carries forward into the sacrificial system carries forward ultimately to the sacrifice of Christ and now today for us thousands of years after Noah post incarnation post crucifixion post glorification We now know that those sacrifices were types and shadows. And this passage is full of types and shadows. The flood of the oncoming judgment of God, of baptism. The sacrifices of these animals, of the sacrifice of the son upon the cross, the destruction and the recreation of the earth, of the second coming of Christ and the institution of the new heavens and the new earth. We have all of these overlapping images and pictures, but the message stands, and that's what I would have us leave here with today, that this God, the one who was so overwhelmingly against sin as to destroy the whole earth and blot out all mankind, is also the God who remembered Noah. This same God who carried these eight people and two of every creature through the flood by an act of his grace, this is the God that we must worship, that we must continue to fulfill what we have been created for, that being worship. Noah knew that he was not the center of his own story. He was not the hero that saved the world. He was the one who did what he was told and was faithful to what God had commanded him to do, and he had no question about to whom to give the glory. He stepped out of that boat onto dry land and said, one of every clean animal that we have gets sacrificed to God. God has saved us. I must worship the one who has saved us. And this God is the same God that we worship today. This God is the same God that through the prophet Isaiah many years later says, Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return to me. Every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Every single voice, will worship God one day. The difference is whether they worship in the face of the onrushing and overwhelming judgment of God, seeing in His holiness and wrath their own destruction, or, if before their fate is sealed, they will worship the One who has called out for Himself a favored people. Don't get it wrong here. Those people who existed on the earth, it became very clear to them that they were not the center of their own stories when the floodwaters broke forth and the rains fell. And all will one day worship God. And God calls and says, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. Noah's immediate response was to worship. And as we have been saved, if we have confessed Christ as our Lord and Savior, our immediate response was to worship. Then we must carry forward part of our act of worship is to carry forth the image of God, carry forth the good news of what he has done. If your worship is just to come to church on Sunday, is that real worship if that doesn't affect anything that you do in the rest of your life? every situation we must acknowledge that we are not the heroes of our own story. We are not the center of our own story. We are not the main characters. People should look at us and say that person is living for something, someone else. Not for themselves. So I would ask that you church would worship God. Worship that he has saved you. If you do not know him, if you have not yet made him the Lord of your life, do so. Worship, for he has called and said, turn to me and be saved. How to turn to him and be saved? Confess Christ as Lord and Savior. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Then turn from your sins, confess your sin, and follow him. But worship God. Worship Him here. Worship Him out there. Worship Him in every situation that you are given to worship Him. And one day we will worship together when we see Him face to face. And we will finally and fully get to fulfill and experience the fullness of what we have been created for. That is to worship God totally unfettered. that end, brothers and sisters, would you join with me in worshiping the God that would preserve for himself a people who in his eyes would find favor and who he would in Christ graft into his own family. Would you join with me in worshiping him as we worship our God in prayer? O Lord, our God, even as Noah did When he realized that he had indeed been saved, when he stepped out upon that dry ground, we would worship you. And Lord, we know now that there is no sacrifice to be made, for that sacrifice, as Noah did, was accomplished in our Savior Jesus Christ. But we would ask that even as Paul says in Romans that we would present our bodies as living sacrifices and that this sacrifice, that we would sacrifice our own control over our lives, our own direction of our own pattern, which, Lord, we would only direct ourselves unto sin and death and darkness. But may we offer a pleasing sacrifice to you, a living sacrifice that we would present ourselves to you for your service. And Lord, as we have peeled back the layers on Noah's story and we have seen the depth of our sin, we have seen the severity of your judgment against sin. Lord, the incredible news of a salvation. The incredible news of a hope and a future that can only be found in your son Jesus Christ becomes all the sweeter. So Lord, let us not forget what we have been saved from. Let us continue to lay down and put to death the sins of our past and even the sins that we are still entangled in today that we would lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes upon Christ, who for the joy that was set before Him endured death, even death on a cross. Lord, we have been created for worship. And we will be most satisfied, we will be most joyful, we will be where we are meant to be when we are worshipping you. When we are worshipping you in song, when we are worshipping you in prayer, when we are worshipping you in the reading of our word, when we are worshipping you in our work, when we are worshipping you in our families and in our relationships, and in every single thing that we do, may we worship you and glorify you that the entire world might know that you are the one who saves. And that we are in desperate need of salvation, well, Lord God, we thank you, we praise you, we ask that you would go with us from this place today. We pray these things in Jesus' name.